Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, Certified Life and Relationship Coach, and Happily Divorced Mom, who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. I am so glad you're here sharing some time with me. Every once in a while, I do an interview with someone I think will blow your socks off, and this episode will do just that. I first met Leanna Strelkoff on Facebook, where I meet most of my favorite people, to be honest. Long story short, we have a few mutual friends who mean a lot to both of us, so Leanna reached out to me, we got on a video call together, and besides knowing immediately that we'd be lifelong friends, when she told me her story, I knew that I had to have her come onto my podcast and share her story with all of you. So a little bit about Leanna. Leanna is a transformation coach, a storyteller, and a speaker passionately dedicated to advancing the way humans respond to change, challenge, and adversity. A lifelong dancer, paralyzed in a hiking accident, Leanna's entire life was elevated, not in spite of paralysis, but because of it. Leanna is the creator of The Shiro's Way, a modern, feminized approach to adversity that turns challenges into catalysts and catapults us upward. Now, before I share our interview, I want to say that Leanna isn't divorced, although she does tell us the story of how her parents' divorce affected her. So I want you to listen to her story from the perspective of transformation. Listen for how Leanna transforms what could have been, should have been, the worst experience almost anyone can imagine into something full of grace and opportunity. And listen until the end where we discuss how this does not mean not acknowledging pain and suffering, but rather embracing all of it. And be sure to check out the show notes for Leanna's gift for you, Discovering Why Forcing Yourself to Be Positive is Making Things Worse. It is a powerful story about Leanna's friend, Missy, whose positive thinking habit had become a positive thinking trap and how you can get out of that trap yourself. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Leanna Strelkoff. So welcome, Leanna. I'm so excited to uh, have you on my podcast and to talk to my people, talk to my peoples about your incredible story. Um, Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Uh, I think I'm just going to kick this off by throwing the ball to you and and having you run with it by by just t- starting with telling us your story. Okay, my story. So, 16 years ago, in the fall of 2002, I was on a date <laughs> and uh, with a guy that I'd known for a couple of years, but had only been dating for a couple months, and we were hiking in the Malibu Hills, and. Um, I grew up doing that sort of thing, hiking and backpacking. The first time I went backpacking, I was five. You know, I didn't have a tent or a bathroom or anything like that. This was real outdoorsy stuff. My father was like that. So this is something I'd done all my life. We were hiking in the Malibu Hills on this date, and um, I climbed a tree about 25 feet into the tree. Mm. 
And um, while I was standing up there, my boyfriend, Dean, was um, up in the tree as well and started telling this really long joke. And while I was waiting for the punchline, I heard a loud crack. And I had this moment where I... I just understood everything. I understood everything there was to understand in that moment. The, a branch I'd been resting my hand on had broken. Um, the weight of my arm was pulling me backward out of the tree. And I knew that there was nothing I could do. That I was going to hit the ground. And about 1.2 seconds later, that's exactly where I was, on the ground. <laughs> um, I never lost consciousness. Uh, I didn't... Um, didn't even knock the wind out of me, which is, I just always shocks me. But I did uh, collapse a lung. I did shatter one of my spinal vertebrae. And I also dislocated my spine very, very mm. severely. So much so that I was instantly and completely paralyzed from the waist down. Now, I had been a lifelong dancer up until that point. So paralysis was actually my worst conscious fear. Like I, I, I thought about this. It, you, it had actually, like, you had actually considered what that would be like. Yes. Happened. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. This was, this was the anxiety that sort of haunted me um, from time to time. Mm-hmm. That, it, it was the worst thing I could imagine. It was the worst thing I could imagine happening to my life. And here I was lying on the ground taking these tiny, tiny little breaths because I only had one working lung and it was incredibly painful to breathe. Um, and I can't, I, in fact, I can't even tell where my legs are in space. My perception is that I'm laying on my back and my legs are bent both at the hip and the knee as if I'm seated in a chair, only I've tipped over backwards. Mm-hmm. And I can see that that's, not where my legs are. Like I would have been able to see my knees right? if I was in that position and I couldn't, I couldn't see them. So I had no idea where they were. Um, it was, it was pretty intense. It was pretty intense. Mm. And I expected that experience to absolutely devastate my life. And it did exactly the opposite. It elevated every aspect of my life. Can you, can you talk one of the things that, um, that I was so struck by was the experience when we've had this, we've talked about this before, the experience that you described so beautifully between the tree branch breaking Mm. and you hitting the ground. And that, I think you said it's 1.5 seconds. And yet what you experienced in that 1.5 seconds is just staggering. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I had been the kind of person before falling out of the tree that was very, um, I was going to say nervous. That's not exactly the right way to put it because that that calls to mind a sort of different uh, presentation. You know, I wasn't the kind of person who didn't want to go out of the house or who was kind of jumping around and, and, and jittery. But I was really trying hard to always be in control of my life. Um, Mm. I had a lot of childhood trauma. Uh, My parents divorced when I was very young. That went very badly for my family. 
um, and for the kids in my family in particular. And I was, I spent my whole adult life, the rest of my childhood and my whole adult life, like basically trying to make sure that bad things like that didn't happen to me ever again. Right. Right. And, um, I was exhausted by the time I was in my thirties, I was so tired and my life wasn't really going anywhere. Like I, I just couldn't get anything off the ground. Um, and so in this moment, when I, when I heard the crack and I realized there was nothing I could do, I let go. Like I, I, I surrendered. I let myself fall because I knew I didn't have any influence. Like I could flail or I could, but nothing was going to make, I was going to hit the ground and I knew it. There was literally nothing that there was nothing you could do to stop this. All you had was surrender. That's exactly right. And in that situation, it's actually very easy to surrender. Sure. You know, it's, it's the situations where we're not sure how much influence we have. Mm. That's when it's hard. Yep. Because then you think, well, but if I do this one thing or if I make this extra effort or maybe it'll go my way. Right. And I knew, I knew that (laughs) there was real, like nothing was going to make this go my way. So I surrendered in that moment and that surrender. Okay. It was extraordinary what happened because First of all, everything dropped into slow motion. So yeah, if you do the physics, it was 1.2 seconds. And that was Dean's experience as a witness, as the sole witness. Yeah. For him, it, it was over in 1.2 seconds. For me, I hung in the air forever. I had enough time to notice the shape of my body in space. I had enough time to look at and notice the leaves on the branches that I was passing. I had enough time to think, wow, television and movies got it right. This really, you really do drop into slow motion (laughs) experiences. And I had time to recognize and really experience pure bliss because Mm -hmm. that's how it felt. Which is just so extraordinary that as you are falling, you experience bliss. And I wonder if the bliss was because of the surrender, because you had no control. What, I mean, have you thought about that or what's your... Are you kidding? Have I thought about 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 it? Your entire every minute since I since it happened, entire life's work. (laughs) Um, Yes, I have thought deeply about it, (laughs) and what I have come to understand is that bliss is the natural state of being one hundred percent present. I was not thinking about the past in any way. I was not you know, regretting climbing the tree. I was not, um, it was not, you know, the, the past didn't exist, nor was I worrying about the future. I was not thinking about the ground is coming or I'm going to hurt myself or what's going to happen. I was right there in that moment. And that the now moment was spectacular. Hmm. And, t- and time, 
I, I think the slow motion is that time stretches under the scrutiny of total presence. Hmm. That's just what happens. Wow. And so few of us get to experience that. So few of us experience that without uh, conscious effort, mm. deliberate conscious effort. And I think so few of us actually really ever experience it in that way. I think it's really challenging. I, th I think it's a lifelong practice. I mean, I certainly, since that moment, have never had again as pristine an experience of presence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, this is now something that I practice, but right, but never again have I had it be so perfect. Mm. Yeah, and so. So take me back to, take me back to your, you're on the ground. You, you, you have this experience, I know in the hospital, right? Where, um, you, you, you had expected in this moment, right? When we all think about this moment, we think about the devastation and the sadness and the terror. Mm -hmm. And you, that was not your experience. Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. So, you know, even, even back in the park, you know, lying on the ground in the dirt under this tree, um, that sense of it, uh, wonder, I think is the best word for it. So mm -hmm. as I was falling, I have this experience of bliss and peace like I've never had in my life. And I hit the ground, which is a total shock, by the way, because I'm falling backwards. So I... I never see the ground coming. Ah, right. Um, and I'm hanging in the air. <laughs> so, so I have no real sense that I'm getting closer to it until it essentially jumps up and hits me. That's mm -hmm. what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And even while I'm there, I have this very clear sense that something extraordinary is happening. That this is not Kansas anymore that I have fallen through some sort of wormhole and I'm in a new place um, and I'm having some really important experience here. So um, we call 911. Dean has a big fight with the operator because she tells him to leave me there uh, and because we're off the trail. Right. And so he has to go to the trailhead to meet the paramedics to bring them into where we are and, and um, finally she wins and he leaves and I'm laying on the ground taking these little like puny infinitesimal breaths. Just, I'm basically breathing as much as I need to, to stay conscious and that's it. Yeah. And I hear the sirens. Um, I can hear the sirens bouncing off the Canyon walls. I know they're coming for me mm -hmm. and I hear a voice in my head and it's my own voice. And she says, everything you need to know is happening right now. Mm. And I immediately start to scan, like, what is happening? What is happening right now? But okay, surrender. That's the first thing. Presence. And face. And the voice says to me, um, remember. Mm. And as soon as I hear it, I realize, okay, things are going to get 
crazy. We're like, things are about to get chaotic. Yeah. The hard part is going to be remembering this moment, remembering that you already know and that you have to keep coming back to this. You have to keep coming back to what you know and that you have to pay attention because this is the way home. That's what she says to me. Mm. Remember, that's the way home. So in the helicopter on our way to UCLA, all through surgery, the 10 days I'm in the hospital before I go to Colorado for inpatient rehab, I'm in this sort of bliss state. It's not as acute but even people in the hospital are like professionals, nurses and techs, and people are coming to just be in the room with me. Hmm. When, you're, when you have a traumatic accident like this, as your condition improves, as you get downgraded, you change floors a lot. <laughs> so, right. yeah. you, know, you start out in the ICU and then they downgrade you from there and then you're in critical care. And you're, so I'm moving around a lot in that 10-day period and staff that's been with me on a previous floor is taking their breaks in my room. Wow. Because they just wanted to be in your presence. There's just something coming through me. There's uh-huh. just some, I mean, I have nothing to do with it. It's not intentional. It's not, I c- couldn't name it for you. I'm just noticing, like, wow, there's an awful lot of people in my room right now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm just, and, and my visitors, you know, because of, of course I'm injured in my hometown. So dozens and dozens of people are coming Mm -hmm. and, and people are saying this to me. They're saying, you look amazing. Like you are glowing. How is that possible? You, You just became paralyzed. You have a broken back. You have a chest tube coming out of you and you are glowing. Mm. so it didn't it didn't it didn't start to get hard until I went to rehab Mm -hmm. and then sort of the reality there's there's nothing that brings home the reality of a spinal cord injury like being in a place where everybody has one oh yeah and so definitely the experience started to shift then okay but it never it never became anything that I expected it would be. And what did you expect? I mean, obviously, I mean, I can speculate on what you would expect it would be because I can, I know what I would expect it would be. I think I, I mean, I expected um, pure terror. Mm -hmm. I expected um, sort of uncontrollable grief. Um. I expected depression. And instead, <laughs> so I, I certainly had um, moments of probably all of that. Mm-hmm. Like my, my very first night at Craig Hospital in Colorado was pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, two states away now from everyone who loved me. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, in this environment where 
they were kind of, they, they were great at Craig. They were, it's an amazing rehab hospital, but, but they, it was all business, you know, it was really like, we, we are here to get you independent and there's all kinds of things you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to learn how to um, use a catheter and you're going to have to learn how to uh, control, you know, manage your bowels. And that's going to, that's going to involve, you know, your finger in your butt on a daily basis and all, you know, and I was just like, Oh my God. Wow. You know, it was so paralysis is so much bigger than you just can't move or feel your legs. Right. Right. Um, you know, every organ system in the part of your body that is compromised, every organ system in that part is compromised. Mm. And for somebody like me who is paralyzed to the greatest degree, you know, medically speaking, I am, I'm on the, uh, on the Asia scale. I'm an A. I am as, I am as paralyzed as it gets. Wow. Okay. So I, I had every problem in the book for somebody, yeah. you know, paralyzed at my level. And I had no idea. I had no idea that all of those things would be involved. And so that first night was, I was so overwhelmed and, and so that's, that's a lot of information to get at once your first day. Yeah. It, 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 it came at me. It came at me very gently, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's a really hard experience. So, sure. so I think there were definitely moments of that. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, um, it was just all peaches and cream. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I had been put on notice to be paying attention, to be really present. And so even when it was really terrifying or... Um, or it would hurt me. The grief would hurt me. I could, in a sense, observe that, note it, relate to it. And that brought this whole other level. So that even while all of that was going on, I noticed these amazing people coming into my life. Like I had incredible allies, um, medical staff, friends, family, um, total strangers. <laughs> I noticed even, even um, like the tree outside my hospital room window. I developed this whole relationship with that tree because here I had fallen out of a tree and I felt really bonded to the tree I had climbed. I still do. Mm-hmm. And I feel to this day, and I certainly felt while I was in the hospital, like every tree on the planet was in my corner. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, when I would have a rough night in the hospital, there would be the evergreen that was right outside my window that even here we were moving into winter in Colorado, snow on the ground, and you have this green tree who's saying to me, there's hope here. There's mm-hmm. beauty here. Don't stop looking for it because it's here. Wow. And so you know, you say that this would have been the worst experience of your life, Mm -hmm. um, but it actually completely transformed your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about what that looked like. Cause I know before you, you know, we've talked about this, you, you were an actor, you were kind of floating and struggling (laughs) as we do. (laughs) Floating is such a kind way to put it. That's really, that's really, that's really generous of you. Yes. Yes. Very generous. Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> as opposed to, you know, floundering, flailing, 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 flailing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Let's go with floating. Let's go with, flo- well, it's funny because that's actually the, right, it's like before, which is interesting, right, that before you were completely flailing and then you're falling out of this tree and you're actually floating. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Um, for those of you listening who aren't actors, you're going to have to take our word for it. <laughs> um, and so, so tell me how, how this shifted your life, because you say that it had this profoundly positive mm-hmm. impact on your life, which to the outside observer sounds completely insane. Yes. <laughs> but yet, when you tell it, it is, there's no question. There's no doubt. There's no, um, it's like, fuck. Yeah. 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 I know it's uh, it sounds crazy to me, uh, honestly, sometimes mm-hmm. when I say it, um, and nobody was more surprised than me. Mm, I'm sure. I, I did not for a moment see this coming. So, um, how does it imp- how does it elevate my life? How does it improve my life? So first of all, it gives me a purpose. So I fall out of this tree. I have this extraordinary experience in the air. I hit the ground, and the extraordinary experiences continue. And all of a sudden, all this magic is pouring into my life, and synchronicities, and the people who come into them, and realizations that I'm having. I'm having these um, conversations with God in my journal. Because remember, I'm a lifelong dancer, so my, my usual way of processing everything is through movement. And here I am lying in a hospital bed. I can't move two-thirds of my body. So I don't have that option. Right. So I take to the journal because I, I got to do something. And I'm, I'm having these, these conversations on, on the page. I mean, there's magic everywhere. And I get out of the hospital two months later. And I fly back to California. And um, within a month or so, I am absolutely compelled to tell these stories. I've, I've never done that. I mean, I've been a performer most of my life, but I'd never told my own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I have to, I, I compelled is the only word I can think of. This is not something even that I so much want to do. I have to start telling these stories. I feel like something is happening to me and I can't be the only one who knows about it or who maybe benefits from it. Like I have to put this out into the world. Uh, which I do. I call up my artistic director and I say, I, I want the theater, you know, just some afternoon when you're dark, you can leave your set up there. I just want to invite some family and friends. I have to start talking. Um, so the fall makes this little adjustment, this little like, tick, you know, like yeah. just a little tiny little, um, what's it called? Like a course correction. Yep. And I start telling my own stories from mm-hmm. That one day with a hundred family and friends, we were, the theater was full. Um, we videotape it. It's a miracle. It's like people, the transformation that's happening in the room, again, never thought that would happen, had no vision for that, but that's what's happening. People are hearing these stories and I am watching them change. Mm -hmm. I see the video. I see myself on the tape. I'm thinking, who is that woman? I have never seen her before. That woman is on fire. 
I take that material. I create a one woman show out of it. It opens a year and a half later in Los Angeles. It is an unbelievable hit. We extend five times. It runs for six months. Mm. It was a workshop. We were supposed to do three weekends. It runs for six months. My speaking career gets born out of that. People I've never heard of, I don't know. I didn't invite. I have no idea how they came. Come to the show. They see me speak. They start inviting me to speak at their university, um, to speak where they work. I end up with an agent on the college circuit. Now I'm speaking nationwide. The show gets invited to Alaska. I then do five national tours on the show. Um, it gets honored by VSA Arts. It's an affiliate of the Kennedy Center. I mean, from a floundering, flailing, <laughs> failing career, I break my back and I go from being an unknown local artist, well-respected, but totally unknown, mm-hmm. to a nationally touring, critically acclaimed solo performer. Like, touring... The nation right so it changes my work and it's um, not like and I just want to I just want to emphasize this right because it's not like you were you know I think that sometimes we make up we make up that like oh well before then she must have been uh one of those really ambitious really clear-headed <laughs> type a go-getter kinds of people and this happened and so she just shifted it that's not that's not <laughs> what this story is about did you hear me snort when you called yes, me I like did. really yes. ambitious go getter? Like no, no, no! I right. was. Oh, right. I really, 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 really want this. Why is it happening? I really, 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 really want this, but it's never. Why isn't it happening? I don't know. Like I didn't know how to engage with those dreams. I didn't know how to put myself out there because I I wanted to know where everything was going to go before it got there. Right. That's the only way I felt safe enough to do anything. Right. Right. So of course, I wasn't doing anything. Of course not. And when you're an actor and you're in that world, it's like you, you, you barely know what to do. No, in right? fact. You know, yeah. I mean, it's so I just want, but I wanted to stress that because I think that's a really important piece that this shift with all of this happening was not it, it, like this was not a predictable outcome for who mm. you were before this moment. No, no, it was not. For yeah. me to put myself out there, with so many unknowns and to put myself out there in such an extraordinary vulnerable way. I didn't know how these stories were going to get received. Right. Like you and I talk about it now and, and we can be moved by it, but you know, this was pretty much just me having this experience. Nobody knew all of these details yet. So I had no idea how it was going to be received. Maybe people were going to be like, well, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had that. It means nothing to me, but I'm so glad it was good for you. Right. I didn't know. I had no way of knowing. So it makes this course correction in my career. My career explodes. My income, everything. It, it, it all explodes in ways <laughs> I, I, I could never have imagined. My intimate relationships. So, you know, I was really good at being somebody's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was definitely a serial monogamous, two to four years and out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it frequently wasn't me leaving. It wasn't like, I, you know, I would always break it off, but I couldn't, it just, I couldn't make it happen for longer than that. One way or another, it would always end. And um, I wanted a family. I, I wanted all of those things, 
but it just wasn't ever coming together. Right. And I had a lot of intimacy issues. If I look back at it and I'm honest about it, that's what was going on. And um, here I am with this guy that I haven't been dating for very long and I have a lot of doubt about. And we have this extraordinary experience together. And he sticks around. And I try really hard to get rid of him. (laughs) (laughs) I spend, in fact, I spend about two years trying to get rid of him where every time, bless his heart, every time he would, you know, try to mention something about the future and the future that we might have together, I would say something like, um, you know, my risk of bladder cancer is really high now because I'm a daily catheter user. Or I would say, you know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uh, or I would say, you know, I am, my life expectancy dropped by 10 years the minute I hit the ground. (laughs) And he just looks at you and says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah. And he, he's like, yeah, I I know I've, I visited you in the hospital. Like I was there when they told you that, (laughs) But, but I felt, cause I, you know, people often ask me, like, weren't you afraid he was going to leave you? And honestly, Kay, I was so much more afraid that he was going to stay for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And that, ten, you know, we, he would stay and we would get married. And 10 years down the line, he would be so resentful and he would screw up both our lives. Mm. I was so much more afraid of that than I was afraid that he would abandon me and no one would ever love me again. Right. And so I really pushed him hard. I really, I I was like, you have to be so clear about what you're getting into. I cannot allow you to stay with any denial whatsoever. And about two years in, he finally looked at me and said, really, Liana, you have to stop. I know what I'm getting into and you have to stop doing that. You have to stop raining on our parade. Mm. And I said, okay. So um, let's see, four years after I fell, Dean and I got married. Mm. We just had our 11th wedding anniversary. Um, Three years after we got married, I gave birth to our son, Mm. who was fabulous and glorious and, you know, the absolute love of my life. Yeah. None of that was accessible to me before I was injured. Mm. Here's my real, my favorite of all these amazing things that happened. You know, we talked about how anxious I was and how controlling I was and contorted I was. Yeah. All of that vanished. Mm. It vanished. I had chronic uh, periodic depression ever since I was a kid, ever since my parents' divorce. That went away Mm. Mm. after I was paralyzed. I started living. I started really living. My life, for the first time, I understood how precious my life was Mm. because I could have so easily lost it. A foot higher in the tree, I had to come down on my head. So the fact that I survived, the fact that, you know, paraplegia is the only thing that happened to me. I didn't, I didn't explode any organs. You know, a a collapsed lung sounds really dramatic, but if you're going to, pop an organ that's the one you want to pop because it heals really quickly and you got another one right right 
you know, everything got better. Mm. And so there are a couple points that I want to, that I want to touch on. Um, One of them is, well, the first thing I, the first thing I actually, just because of my audience and my listenership and what we talk about, um, I want to touch briefly on the experience of your parents' divorce Mm. and what that was like for you and why Mm. Um, it was so damaging to you uh, because I think it's a great story of what not to do (laughs) 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 for my (laughs) God love your parents, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I was three years old at the time. I'm the youngest of three girls um, in the original set uh, my father was married three times and there's kids in all three relationships, but we were the first, we were the first group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was three. Um, I had two older sisters and the first thing that, that went so poorly was that my father essentially announced he was leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, if my mother knew that this was coming or this was on the table, we certainly did not. The kids did not know. Right. So he announced he was leaving. That was very confusing. Like, what does that even mean? Uh-huh. And my father's intention at the time was to leave and to never see us again. He had convinced himself that that was in our best interest. Mm-hmm. My mother would remarry. We would have a new dad. You know, our lives would go on. We would be part of a family. And that we would be better off if he just cut his ties. And that was that. Um, I don't know if my father, cause I don't remember, I don't know if my father told us that we weren't going to see him, mm. but I do know that he pulled three crying girls off his body, got into his car and drove away. Oh. And that for a full month, I did not, see him, talk to him, hear from him, nothing. He just disappeared. Mm-hmm. So that was the first major horrible moment right. for all of us. Yep. Um, my father ended up changing his mind because he could not bear to be away from us, to not be connected to us. So he was not interested in reuniting with my mother, but he did not want to lose connection to his girls, his kids. So um, he re-entered my life, um, which I don't have a ton of memory about, but shortly thereafter, my mom moved us to, uh, to Los Angeles, 400 miles from where we were, mm-hmm. because her parents were here in LA. Yeah. And, um, and she needed the support. Sure, of course she did. So um, over the next few years, we saw my dad. He would come and visit. He would come and pick us up and take us back to the Bay Area, and we would spend time with him. So he, he continued to be a part of my life, but he was not in any way a daily part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, these were these sort of periodic visits. And I remember them generally being pretty positive, but he definitely was not kind of part of the ongoing moment-to-moment-ness of my life. Then the next major trauma happened. Um, so during this time of visitation and going back and forth, my parents were trying to negotiate custody. And they wanted vastly different things. 
And I, my understanding is that the communication between them was not very upfront. Um, my father wanted something crazy, which is maybe not so surprising given what you already know about him. (laughs) (laughs) What my dad wanted was he wanted us to live with him for a year and then live with her for a year and then for a year and then live with her for a year. Good God. I mean, yeah. I don't know why different. Those were, that was just a different era. Like that just would never, I don't even, I, I mean, God, I hope that would never even be, anywhere near anyone's table these days. Um, but let alone yeah, table. But, this was in the early seventies. Yeah. And, and I don't know why he thought that maybe he thought that was less disruptive somehow, or I, I really yeah. have no idea, but I do know that's what he wanted. And, and my mother, when she tells the story will say, you know, I was never going to agree to that. But when I asked my dad many, many years later, that was not clear to him that she would never agree to that. Hmm. It was sort of like, well, we're negotiating. I don't know. Like he, Hmm. so I don't know. I don't know where the disconnect was, but I think there were many, many, many disconnects between them. Yeah. Um, This was not the only one for sure. So the next big mistake was that at the, we were coming up apparently on a custody hearing again at the kids. I don't think we knew that that Mm -hmm. was happening, but my parents were coming up on a court appearance And my father was given extraordinarily bad advice, um, or he was given, he was given a statement that he interpreted in a very unfortunate way. It's hard to know, but my father was told that his desires would look more appealing to the judge if we were living with him at the time of the hearing. Hmm. So in my father's extraordinary wisdom, thinking that, well, you know, they're still my kids. I have as much right to them as she does. My father drove to Los Angeles without telling my mother, picked me up at school, and drove me home to my my mother's house to get my sister after school with the intention of taking us back to the Bay Area. So essentially kidnapping you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All the, um, things, all the things not to. <laughs> and, I, and again, like from his point of view, he in a sense had a right to this. Like, you know, the kidnapping word came up many, many years later and he was horrified by that word. Right. He couldn't see it right. that way at all. Right. Because, because it doesn't feel like kidnapping when they're your children. Right. Yeah. And he had no um, perception, no conception that our life, our lives had gone on right. without him. Yeah. Without him being there all the time. So for us, this was so weird. Right. This was like the strangest experience and um, ended up being very, very traumatic. He, he failed. He did not get us. He actually didn't get us past the front door because um, he left me in the car. He went into the house to explain to my older sister what was happening, ask her to t- tell her to pack some things up for us. And she was really dragging her feet because she couldn't figure out what was going on. Mm. She was like, does mama know like what's happening? What this is never, we've never done it this way before, you know? And of course, the longer she was taking, the more anxious he was getting because at some point my mother was going to come home. At some point she was going to go to school to get me. She was going to be told that he had gotten me already. 
this, it was going to get ugly. And so he was sort of, you know, rushing her and pushing her and getting frustrated with her. And she panicked and she took off. She, she ran out of the house. And how old was she? Uh, my sister was about, let's see, I was five. So she would have been 12. Wow. Okay. And um, she took off. He got in the car to chase after her. In the meantime, my mother came home. I mean, it was like she's like right. out of a you know a after school movie, right? Um, she, my mother, got my sister into the house, uh, locked her into the house. My father, again, in his extraordinary wisdom, totally lost it. Broke into the house. You know, it was just this horrible, horrible yeah. nightmare. So you know, in the end, we have the police, and he gets arrested, and one big, huge trauma. So for me, you know, as the youngest child in this mess and not not understanding a whole lot of what's going on and people screaming and crying and, and my sister becomes a totally different person than I had ever known her to be after this event. She is Mm -hmm. a different person for years. I I lose her. He, he takes her from me. Like she's gone. Mm. She's replaced. Yep. And and trying to make sense of all of this, and especially at the age that I was at, you know, it's all about me. Sure, of course, of course, because there's, there's no other way to development of a five-year-old. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There is no other way to conceive it. Right. No, there is not in the five-year-old brain. That is that is a that's a reality. So I feel like there's something horribly wrong with me. Mm-hmm. that I am like an abomination and that I have to hide that because anyone who sees that, you know, I'm, I'm for sure going to be abandoned and, and horrible things are going to happen. Um, so I go, I go into survival mode mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. And then there's a third trauma because, you know, two's never enough. <laughs> so, um, the, you know, my father is actually, he, he is not awarded custody, but he is awarded visitation. Mm-hmm. And there's an agreement and we're supposed to spend one weekend of every month and half of every school holiday with him. Uh, my sister refuses to go. So, and my oldest sister was never part of the custody um, because she was about to become an adult. She was 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's, it was never about her. Right. My middle sister refuses to go. So I start making visits to my father's house 400 miles away alone. And my father has this attitude that if you act like everything is normal, the kids will think it's normal and everything will be fine. Yep. And I just feel crazy. Right. I just, there's no validation for anything that I'm feeling. Yep. My sister is swearing me to secrecy. Don't tell him anything about, cause she's terrified of him. Right. So she's saying, don't tell him anything about me. Don't tell him where I am. Don't tell him what I'm doing. Cause she's scared. He's going to come get her. Right. I'm asleep. You know, I'm laying in my bed in his house in my bedroom and there's her furniture in the room we're supposed to share and it's empty. And he's acting like this is the most normal situation like it's always been this way. Right. And you have never been without your siblings. I mean, you are never. You're a pack of three and being the youngest, you've always been the pack of three. That is right. I have never, never, ever visited him without at least one sibling with me ever. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. This is so unnormal. <laughs> right. And this, you know, this is, while a lot of this is, you know, all, one would hope that most parents would not do that these days and things have changed. One thing that, that I think does not, has not changed enough and that I'm a strong advocate for um, always is that when you don't name something uh, for children, um, it's really scary. And this idea of just like whistling past the graveyard or sweeping under the rug and like, we're just going to pretend like everything's normal. When a kid knows that it's not normal and then the grownups are pretending that it is, it, it creates this sort of schism in our, in our perception of reality that is uh, lasting, mm-hmm. truly lasting. Um, and it's the same on the, I totally agree. And it's the, it was the same on the other side for me too, with my mom, although differently, so much could have been avoided with some skilled naming because even in her house where I certainly felt safe, Mm -hmm. I didn't have that same, like things feel, I feel so insecure, but I can so remember coming into the kitchen and my mom would be making dinner and she'd be saying, she'd be crying. And my stomach would turn over and I would go to her and she would say, it's the onions. Right. Of course. It's the onions. And I, and I'm now crying and I, like, you know, in your body, it's not the onions. Right. But what am I supposed to say to her at five and six and seven? No, mom, it's not. Let's talk about this. Right. So now I have no, no way of engaging we're just both in the kitchen crying. Yeah. And she's the one who's supposed to teach you to name your feelings and talk about them, right? You're not the one that who's supposed to teach her about that, but yet, you know, instinctively and intuitively that that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. 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 So, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And it's lasting. That's the thing. The effects of these things, the way that we work with our children through this process is lasting. Yeah. I can hear it still in your voice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And all the years that I thought, um, you know, as a teenager, I would never have children because I recognized that I could not guarantee for them that bad things wouldn't happen to them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was, the, that was the only acceptable standard. You can only bring a child into this world if you can guarantee that they won't have to go through these kinds of things. And by that time, I knew that people are out of my control and lots and lots of things I can't, I don't have any say about. Yep. Yep. Which, which is a beautiful segue into mm. um, th- what you talk about being... so let's talk about what you do now. Right. And then, and the difference between, as you say, being in command and being in control Mm, Um, and, and sort of where, I mean, all of this, right. I want to hear about the Shiro's way. I want to, let's transition this whole conversation into like, where are you now? What do you do? And how have you, you, how have you taken this story and this transformation and created uh, everything that you do now? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked. And bless your heart, it's going to be like your longest podcast episode ever. ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what do I do now? So um, 
so the, I, I told you that the accident sort of recalibrated my career. And so for years I was, you know, doing this show. And then um, I started to realize that that wasn't the right container for me because I would travel the country and I would be in residence in some city. And while I was there, I was doing workshops. I was meeting a lot of people and I was hearing a lot of stories. People were hearing my story and they were sharing their challenges with me. And virtually none of them had to do with disability. They were divorce stories. They were, um, you know, loss of a loved one. They were, there were some illness, some illness stories. There were assaults. There were big changes with careers or at work or downsizing or bankruptcy, mm-hmm. all different kinds of challenges. And, um, and they were seeing themselves in my story. Yeah. And I was seeing so much suffering. And here I had had this extraordinary experience. Like paralysis had made me so much better. It had made my life bigger and it had made me bolder and brighter. And I was watching people really under the thumb of Mm. their challenges. Early in my experience, about two years in, I'm going to jump back for just a second because Mm -hmm. I was having dinner. It's an important story. I was having dinner with my mom and I was marveling to her. Like, isn't it incredible that something so devastating can happen to a person and have it turn your life to gold? Like, isn't, isn't that extraordinary? And my, my mom, my mom said, yes, it is. But how, how is that happening? Mm-hmm. Now, my mom is a concentration camp survivor who has trauma like you wouldn't believe from the first 17 years of her life and has nightmares 70 some years later. And I could not let that, an- that question go unanswered. So I, I have a master's degree in human development. And I thought, you know what? I don't have the answer to that question right now. I can't tell you how this happened, but I can answer it. Mm-hmm. And so I made that really my mission. And I started to deconstruct my journey. How did I, how did this happen? How did this become such a positive in my life? I looked at my attitudes. I looked at my beliefs, my behaviors, my habits. I looked at the actions I did and didn't take. And I looked at every moment along the road because it's not like I had it all figured out from the beginning. I didn't. Um, And so I looked at every learning moment that I had and I started to codify this into into a system, into an approach. So here I am on the road for five years and I'm meeting all these people and they're suffering and I know it can be different mm-hmm. and I need a way. Like it's not enough for me anymore to come into a community and say it can be different and then go home and just let people flop around in that. Right. I knew the way and I had a bloody lantern. Yeah. So I, I had to be on that road. I wanted to be on that road with people holding up that lantern. So um, so I opened a coaching practice. I, I had this degree already. I had the training and I, I started coaching about seven years ago. And this approach that I codified, I called the Shiro's way. Mm-hmm. And I started working directly with women in particular, whatever challenge they were facing, even just daily life challenges, even not the big dramatic ones that, you know, we classify as adversity, but right 
just the daily challenges of trying to balance, you know, a career and our kids and, and maybe there are struggles in relationships or, you know, just, just the way that life is so much of the yes, time. Right. Exactly. And wanting to turn those experiences into catalysts. Mm. And that's what I now help people do. Amazing. And so can you talk a little bit about the Shiro's way and what this process, because you, de- you developed and sort of honed a process. Yeah. Yeah. So what I realized is that we have these, um, we have these, I was going to say habitual, but really a better word is human. We have these very human ways of responding to change, challenge, and adversity. Um, there's four that we typically see. Mm-hmm. So those four would be denial. <laughs> we all know how well that works. La, 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 la. Uh, happening. Nothing's happening here. Um, we have avoidance, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different. Um, they're definitely related, but avoidance is, you know, you're not actually saying a problem isn't happening, but I'm just not going to face it or deal with it or I'm, I'm going to go do this thing over here instead. I don't know anything about that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Believe me. I see myself in all of these. (laughs) So there's denial, there's avoidance, there's fighting. Mm. Take on this sort of adversarial, like, well, you know, it's beat it or be beaten by it. Yeah. Right. And we, we put on the boxing gloves and we sort of get down in the dirt and we're going to take this on. I totally did that when I was paralyzed. That was my first when I got into rehab, that was my first response. It's like, mm-hmm. no way. I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to be, it's fine that it's never happened before. Fine. I'll be the first. Right. Yep. I'm going to recover. I'm going to get back everything I lost. And I'll tell you that approach made me very sick physically. Mm-hmm. I could not sustain that. Mm. And, and sometimes that approach does work in, in, in other kinds of challenges. There's no question that that approach works. But if that's the only approach that we have, God forbid we get hit with a second challenge yeah, or a third challenge. Oh my God. We are so exhausted. It's very hard to sustain that kind of fight. <sighs> yeah. And there's something very important that that fight cuts us off from. And I'll come back around to that in a second. Mm-hmm. So, so there's the fight response. And then there's the one that I think is probably really the most common. And that's the, you know, grin and bear it. Like put your head down into the wind and just sort of try to get through it and hope it ends sometime soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that too can work because, um, you know, when circumstance delivers you, when life delivers you into a hard circumstance, oftentimes time alone will eventually bring you out of that circumstance. Right. It's not always true, but often it is. It might take a really long time. Mm-hmm. If you do nothing at all, oftentimes time alone will bring you through. But you come through really battered. Yeah. So I think about the caterpillar who goes into the cocoon and, you know, what it do- does in there, it dissolves. Yeah. Everything it's been goes away before it can become this butterfly. Which I literally don't think I knew until you told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I was <Yeah>. like, what? <laughs> Wait, I thought that the, but the, the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. No, it's it, not like the caterpillar body just sprouts wings. Right. It becomes cellular soup. 
So imagine for the caterpillar, like there goes its antenna floating off and its feet, like it dissolves. So such a different story than it's like it, it's like we've, the story, the myth, the mythology of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly has left, has leaves out the most really excruciating phase yes yeah and And we just think that if we wrap ourselves up in a cocoon and then we're going to come out a butterfly it's like no 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 no. everything that we are has to disintegrate first (laughs) that's right that's exactly right and it's terrifying it's terrifying and it's uncomfortable and it's painful and then when it but that's what allows the the cellular reorganization that has to happen Yep. Otherwise it, it, it can't happen. Yep. So, you know, time when obviously this isn't true for the caterpillar, cause it's going to dissolve no matter what it does. But when we get delivered into the, into the cocoon, if we wait long enough, we often find ourselves out of the cocoon. But the question is, do you want to come out a battered version of the caterpillar that went in? Or do you want to come out this beautiful butterfly that can take flight and soar? Mm-hmm. so that put your head down, just get through it. Y- you might absolutely get through it. That might work. But again, if, you, if it takes a really long time or if you get hit by another challenge of any kind, like you're so depleted from the experience. So these are our four, our four standard human responses, and we all do them. They're totally instinctual and natural. And they're all getting in the way. (laughs) So I, of course, went through all of those, except I didn't do a whole lot of denial when I was paralyzed. And it's simply because I couldn't. You literally couldn't. Right. I I mean, it was just like, if I had been able to, I'm sure I would have. Right. But your circumstances were just a little in your face. (laughs) That's right. There was just no way to do it. So I went through all of that at one time or another. In fact, I went through all of it very, very quickly, like within that two month period. And what Mm -hmm. I realized was that, there had to be another way. And what I was being asked to do, like what my, my spirit, that voice in my head was asking me to do was to engage with this experience, to relate to it. So we call it the Shiro's way. And it's because you've heard of the hero's journey, right? Right. Right. So Joseph Campbell gave us this model based on world myths. And in the hero's journey, the hero has to slay the dragon. And in doing that, the hero is transformed by the, by the effort and by the journey. And the hero gets the, whatever the prize was, the golden fleece or the elixir of life. And he brings that back to his community. And I realized very early on that that's my life. Like I am in a hero's journey. And, but there was this one critical difference, which is that if I tried to slay the, first of all, you know, you can't exactly slay paralysis. Right. But if I tried to slay the dragon, I would physically become ill. Like I, I, my, my energy would drop out and I would, I would be nauseous and like, I couldn't sustain that. Right. So I had to instead enter into what I call a dance and you know, it's what I know. So it makes sense that that's the metaphor I chose. Right. Of course. Yeah. So, Paralysis and, I, paralysis and I sort of entered into this dance where I didn't like it. It's not like I had, you know, happy, joyous feelings about it, but I was curious about it. Like, what do you have for me? Remember the voice said, pay attention. Mm-hmm. What can you learn here? What can you 
What can you see in a new way because of what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Who, what golden thing is coming into your life? Who is present in your life? What allies do you have? What experience of allyship can you have that you've never had before? What, do you, what does this hold for me? And as soon as I got curious, Kate, that's when all the gifts started showing up. Mm. And it doesn't mean that process wasn't hard. It doesn't mean that I wasn't sad. It doesn't mean that I didn't ache to be able to walk or run or climb or dance. Those things still, I still felt those feelings, but now I had that and all this beauty Mm. and all this opportunity and all this glory. So I started referring to my own journey as the Shiro's journey, because really what we're talking about here is what might be considered a feminized approach. Yeah. This is a relational approach instead of an adversarial approach. Right, right. How can I relate to you? I'm still going to be myself. It's not the same as I'm going to lay down and let you have your way with me. You know, paralysis wins and I give up. It's not about that. Right. I have, I have feelings. I have intentions. I have reactions. But I'm, I'm, I'm out of that reactive mode and I'm in a responsive mode. So getting curious opens up the door. Mm. This is a new paradigm reaction, new paradigm approach to change, challenge, and adversity. And it does not matter the nature of the change, challenge, or adversity. Right. It doesn't matter the, right. nature, it doesn't matter the degree. It can, it can the, the, you know, the challenge can be the person that you're trying to relate to. The challenge can be simply what's happening in the relationship. It can be the fallout for your children. Any of it. It all counts. It all matters. And it all can be approached in this way. Yep. And I love it. amazing love it. things yep. happen when we do. So I want to go back to command and control though, because you yep. asked about that. Yep. So I was this person who wanted to be in control like, desperately of everything that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And it was so obvious that I, there's so many things I don't have control over. And that is still truth. I don't have control over a single other human in my life. Right. And honestly, I don't have perfect control over me either. Like I can't control Mm -hmm. my emotions. I can't control. There's so much I can't control. I can't control what my body needs from, from the depths of paralysis to just how much I need to sleep in a given day. I can't control that. Command though is different. Because even when a situation is totally out of my control, I have a choice about who I bring to that situation, mm-hmm. the version of me yep. that I bring. Yep. So I stopped trying to be in control and started focusing on staying in command mm. of me. Mm. I love that distinction. I love that distinction. I, I talk about it a lot with my clients, the idea that you can't control what anyone else is going to do. Um, we talk about this in divorce scenarios all the time, that we literally can't control what your ex is going to say, what, how this, what narrative they're going to present to the world, or you know, how they're going to treat the kids, any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can do, I, you know, I talk about it in terms of keeping your side of the street clean. Mm-hmm. You can show up as the best version of you possible, um, no matter what anyone else does. 
Um, and I, lo- I love, I love that framing of it as being in command, being in command of, of yourself because it, it's different from surrender. It's different from relinquishing control mm, because mm-hmm. it's more active, right? It's you actually do have something you can do. <laughs> it's in, well, you know what it is? It's empowered. Yes. That's the, that's the difference between just like giving up or, or saying, well, really, as you said, relinquishing control. Yes. Relinquishing control is like giving your power away to somebody. Yes. And I, I'm yes. not advocating for that at all. You, you maintain your power while recognizing that you don't have any control over them. Yes. 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 In fact, you, you gain so much more power yes. when you stop trying to control others. Um, because again, like you said, you're in command of yourself. And I love that. I love that reframe. That's amazing. Um, you said you talk about what are the first steps to transforming these challenges into catalysts? Yeah. Um, so the first step we've covered so much material here. So let, yeah, let's let's break it down and make it make it simple. So those first steps, the very first step in any challenging situation that you're in is to recognize that you are in the presence of opportunity. Mm. Now, again, that, that is not some sort of miracle that's going to make it not be challenging. <laughs> right. It, it, that doesn't like solve your challenging problem or, or, um, you hearing that voice that said, pay attention, listen, yes. was yes. not. And that moment as you're falling through the air did not mean that you weren't going to hit the ground and become paralyzed. Exactly. And ignored doesn't mean now when I am really feeling the grief, I'll have these moments where I just miss doing something. Mm. You know, I just long to move my body in a particular way. Yeah. And that hurts. 16 years later, it still hurts me. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in the presence of that grief, there's always a part of me that's curious. There's always a part of me that's, that's aware that this is potent ground. Yeah. I'm still hurting, but I'm simultaneously aware this is potent ground. Okay. So that's the first step is recognizing in those moments, ah, this is fertile ground. And there's a really quick step that happens right after that, which says yes, yes to this fertile ground. Mm, yeah. Yes. It's super fast. But we have free will. So just because it's fertile ground, just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean you have to take it. Right. Right. So there's that quick moment of, yep, I'm interested. Right. There's the there's the first moment of this is fertile ground, and then there's that second moment in which you go, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> or, right. <laughs> or you can say, okay, okay. Okay, I'll enter I'll enter and you don't even have to buy in. No. I'll, enter, I'll entertain that possibility. I'll entertain the possibility, right? It's like in 12-step programs, right? There are entire steps, there are two entire steps devoted to the process of becoming willing. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't go from um, surrender to turning your will in your life over you go from surrender to okay fine <laughs> I'll entertain yeah. the notion that there might be something that's right before that's right. you get to that and I think and that's, that's enough that's enough yes 
Those are actually, I mean, my experience of 12 step work is that those are the most profound steps Mm. that that's that space of that's the being in the in-between and being in the gray area and being in the like, ah, I don't really want to, I think it's probably going to be better. I just, okay, I'll think about it. (laughs) Yeah. I will entertain this possibility. And I think that we, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe I'm the only one who's like this, but I I often demand of myself these really big leaps. Like I, I have yes. to, in order for, I think in order for something to work, I have to be all in a hundred percent all the time up to my knees. And it's actually not true. <laughs> it's actually not true. I cover a tremendous amount of ground uh, just by being willing to entertain the possibility. Yes. Yes. I am. I am. I am exactly the same way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The same way. I will take one class and I want to know how I can be the instructor um, and where do I get my certification and how do I skip to the end of the line? <laughs> and, and that I'm only getting something out of this class if I read the textbook from the beginning to the end. And right. I, like, I have to do everything, the absolute most, make the greatest effort in mm-hmm. order to get anything back. And really... And then when I don't, I toss the whole thing because it's not worth it. <laughs> this, is why, this is why we get along so well. Like, you, you the, perfect, the perfect compliment of neuroses, you know? <laughs> yes, this is why I love you. Because yes, this is why we're in love. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Okay, so there's recognize the opportunity. There's uh-huh. that split second moment of entertain the possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, approach, yes. And then get curious. Mm -hmm. Just make a habit of being curious without denying what you're actually experiencing. So that's a, that's an important piece because that is so important. That is so important because I think so much of the spiritual acceptance stuff that we, uh, that we hear about or we get the translation is this rejection of the actual experience. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it's funny that we should mention this, right? I'm assuming we're getting toward the end of our, our time, but yes, we um, should. I, uh, it's funny. We should he- arrive here right now because I actually have a gift for all your listeners. And it's an, it's an audio about this very thing. It's a story called death by positivity. Hmm. Why forcing yourself to be positive is making things worse. Oh God. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what a gift. Everybody, yeah. you need to listen to it. It'll be in the show notes, and you have to, have to, have to, have to, because yes, yeah. yeah. This this issue of so get curious, but we have to stay authentic with what's really happening. And so, if you are scared, if you are hurting, if you are really hating what's happening, and you just wish it would go away, we have to honor that while simultaneously being curious. One does not replace the other. Oh, I love it. I love it. So it's gold, gold. Everybody listen, rewind. That was gold. <laughs> for real. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's the same with gratitude. No forced gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude is a great thing. I'm, I'm very pro gratitude and I think it's an extremely healing force, but I see a whole lot of people in a whole lot of pain trying to force themselves into being grateful for a really bad situation. Yes. Yes. And that, uh, there's a, there's a real problem there. Yep. And I, you know, I love that you, first of all, just thank you for, for 
sharing all of this, your wisdom and your beauty and your experience and your passion and all of it. Um, because I, f- and I feel like it's like the more that I get to know you, the more that I'm sure that you are the person to convey this message to the world. Mm. And that, you know, really, um, and I think that the extremity of your situation and your experience um, places you in this such a unique place because you really could go in one of, or the other direction. And you have chosen this, this space to occupy mm. that is so unique and so important and so incredibly beautifully powerful. Mm. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that you, well, first of all, I'm grateful you're in my life and I'm grateful that you came on to talk about this um, with my listeners because, you know, anyone who's going through a divorce is is in this level of pain and, mm-hmm. and there is opportunity and there is growth and there is power and there is empowerment and all of that in it and there is pain and yes. there is, you know, and loss. Oh, there's so much there, loss. You know? There is. And it's so important that we acknowledge um, all of that. I mean, I yeah. still have grief and pain. I've been divorced for 10 years and I still talk about the layers of grief mm-hmm. that don't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's definitely true for me too. you know in terms of paralysis in terms of my parents divorce there's definitely you know the loss of that family even though I had you know my father and I went through a really incredible healing journey when I was in my 20s so I got 20 plus years with him after that that were golden that were beautiful and um and I've had great relationships with my siblings and with my mom and even so I still grieve and mourn the loss of that original family. Mm-hmm. I still feel that. And I still, yeah. there are times when I feel it, you know, more than others, more acutely than others, for sure. Yeah. So yes, the layers of that. I'm, I'm so, um, I'm really moved by your reflection of me and, and so grateful for this opportunity and for what you said about sharing this message. Cause I really, that is my purpose in life for sure. And I knew I knew from, I mean, we knew before I hit the ground, you know, I knew that this was, it was being given to me in particular. Yes. Uh, because I could, because I could have this experience and because I could tell the stories and because I could make a difference mm. and my life exists for that. Yep. It's oh. so clear and it's just, and it's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. It's not always easy. So I'm it's, sure it's um, not. No, it's really great to hear that. And also, you know, we all have, I mean, I assume we all have, we all have those little doubting voices in our head, right? I'm not the only one who has that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's the, those voices in my head that, that just like that first time I started telling those stories with is, does this matter to anybody? You know, is this going to resonate for anybody? Does it, it seems so significant to me, but is that just me? Right. Um, And every time I share these stories, (laughs) every time I share this perspective, I hear people say things that like what you just said. And I'm, I'm just so relieved. I'm so relieved that, that I can do it and that I'm here and that I survived um, and that I get so much support to do it. And that people like you 
invite me into their space and say, please share what you have. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.